I'm Mark Golub, and in the news, the state of Israel staggers towards the creation of a stable coalition government after the recent fifth round of elections. And once again, Benjamin Netanyahu will be tasked with putting together and heading the new coalition government. So all those who predicted and certainly wished for Mr. Netanyahu to ride into the Israeli political sunset, they'll have to live with Bibi's presence for the immediate, if not the foreseeable, future. But the election results have included some surprises. With merits, the left-wing progressive party in Israel, a longtime leader in Israeli politics, certainly in the discussions, they were unable to reach the percentage threshold to win any seats at all in the upcoming Israeli Knesset. So lo and behold, Meretz is gone for the time being, which reflects something about Israeli attitudes regarding the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. Netanyahu's Likud party won 32 seats in this election, up three from the prior election, while sitting Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid saw his party, Yesh Atid, which means there is a future. Yesh Atid won 24 seats, seven more seats than in the last election. But clearly, Netanyahu's 32 seats puts him in a position to form and lead the new coalition government. And as the longest serving prime minister in Israeli history, and at 73 years old, he'll now serve as Israeli prime minister for a record third time. And after five elections in less than four years, Bibi is likely to, likely to have a stable government for the first time since 2019, enabling the Knesset to finally produce a budget. And by the way, while this is all going on, Bibi Netanyahu took time to write his memoir. By the way, you normally don't write a memoir until you're done. He's not done. So as I was discussing with Kharazami, uh, he may have to do, you know, another version of his memoir. But it's interesting that during this period of time, while he's fighting to stay in power, while he is also worried about the legal threats against him, he writes this book. And after the election, he delivers a speech in Washington after November 1st to try to quiet loud concerns that his government will be controlled by the far right, with a large block of orthodox religious parties, and by a somewhat surprising agreement with a most controversial figure in the Israeli and world you were seeing, Itamar Ben-Gavir, who was once a disciple of Mayor Kahana, Netanyahu said he would lead a national government 
that will look after everyone. And he also pledged to heal the divisions with Israeli society, adding that the country respects all of its citizens. Well, other political pundits were unsure that Netanyahu would be unable to rise to the position of prime minister again. At the same time, one a long-time observer of the Israeli scene predicted somewhat fearlessly here on JBS that Netanyahu would be the winner of his past November elections, and he was right. And I am proud that he is now senior vice president of JBS after 16 years of service around the world in the Israeli diplomatic corps. His name is Shachar Azani. You see him all the time on JBS. And Shachar, kudos for having the courage to say when we were last on the air that you thought Netanyahu, in fact, would prevail and you were correct. And it's wonderful to be sitting with you now to hear your overview right. as you look at what these elections mean for the state of Israel most particularly, but also maybe for American Jewry as well. But mazal tov, <laughs> and it's wonderful to be with you again. I, uh, first of all, always a pleasure. I love sitting here with you, Mark, and our viewers and having these important conversations where you can have them nowhere else. I also want to say, you know, you mentioned diplomacy. And being a diplomat is something you forever do. And yeah. when you think about what we try to do here on JBS is empower public discourse with information, not just talking off the cuff, but really knowing what you're talking about, exposing the stories behind Israeli politics, Israeli culture, things you're not going to hear on the general mainstream media. And I'm proud and privileged to be part of this incredible doing under your leadership and with such a stupendous team around us. Also, you were in Israel at the time of the election. Exactly. For JBS. Correct. And I want to get a sense for you. What was the feeling you had about the mood of the Israeli electorate, the Israeli people? And were they energized for this election? Or this is the fifth time they're going to the polls. Was there some kind of fatigue, you know, election fatigue right. in Israel? We in America have never had a series of elections that close together. Right. And, you know, you need two to four years in America. Huh. Here, we had five elections in less than four years. What was the mood in that few days that you were there leading up to and then through the election? I'll tell you, um, first of all, it was a great privilege to be in Israel for the elections. Um, on behalf of JBS, interacting with the people, with pundits, with politicians, and like you're saying, with the ordinary Israeli. So the first element is yes, there was a considerable and very palpable amount of fatigue. But that fatigue had a very interesting result. Israelis arrived in the polls determined to put an end to these cycles. So the fatigue actually led to a more energized constituency. Mm -hmm. People were going to vote en masse, and the actual percentage of voting exceeded 70%, which 
hasn't been seen in over two decades in Israel. So yes, there was fatigue, but there was a high voter turnout yes. in the ballots to finally make a decision on these elections. Now, when you talk about what do Israel, what did Israelis feel? I can tell you there were two very visible elements. One is what was the common concern of many Israelis? And we visited and spoke with many Israelis uh, in different parts of the country. First of all, it was life itself. You know, in Israel, that's what it's called, life itself. Here in the U.S. and in the halls of international diplomacy and politics, we speak often, like you mentioned at the outset, about the Palestinian issue, about Iran, about security-relevant matters, relationship with the U.S., Jewish diaspora. But at the end of the day, a lot of Israelis were expressing concern about their own lives on two levels. One, the economic level. Can we continue to make Israel livable for young couples who want to build a home, who want to buy a home, who want to rent a home, who are going to have public transportation, who are going to have a job? It was very visible concern on the side of many Israelis, especially young Israelis. I remember speaking with a, with a teenager who barely had the first right to vote in these, this fifth round, and this is what she has in mind. And the second element, which also played a part in these elections, was element of fear. There was a considerable rise in anti-Israel, Palestinian terrorism, um, different terror attacks occurring in different parts of the country, and it was clear that Israelis were concerned. There was another element, which was a kind of a funny element for me, which is identity politics. Because when people, some people saw me with a camera, asking them questions, um, some of them immediately pointed out and saying, oh, you're part of the biased anti-BB media. But then that doesn't make sense because you're of Yemeni origin, so you're supposed to be Likud. How does that work? This is how identity politics work. And it was a fascinating journey, as every journey in Israel is. And I'll tell you one more thing. Regardless of the election, when you talk about celebration of democracy, that's exactly yes, what you have in Israel. Absolutely. Democracy to the core, democracy textbook level. You, you want to know how democracy is done? Come to Israel. The diversity of opinions, the livelihood of the people who are so excited about engaging in this process. I want to hit you back to something you said, and I want to know whether the reality ultimately would make you say in a different way. At one point you said, this election is going to be about Bibi. It's either yes Bibi or no Bibi. And I thought that it was a fascinating insight and I wasn't hearing it or reading it in other places. And it's going to be about Bibi, meaning if you, in some way, if, you, if you're in the camp, that's anti-Bibi. You may feel about him as people who hate Trump feel about Donald Trump in, in the United States and is about Bibi. But I find it interesting, Shahar, that when you list the things you heard from the electorate at the time, that wasn't said. And it seems to me that even for young people, BB was not their savior. Right. How do the young generation feel about BB? Do you think that they voted for him as well? And that part of the reason why he is going to have another term 
is the young people. I'll tell you. So first of all, the concern that I expressed on behalf of Israelis um, is, is a concern that uh, comes up a lot. So it's, it's kind of like the perpetual issue that troubles a lot of Israelis more and more uh, in the course of the last elections. And I'm not saying last, I'm talking 15, 15 years, 20 years. Make no mistake, though, the overarching issue in these elections, the fifth round, was Bibi. Because what happened now here, imagine a scenario where Benjamin Netanyahu would announce that he is stepping off the political stage, that he has written his book and he's good to go on a speaking tour of the Western world about his experience as a leader and a prime minister. Then you wouldn't have an issue because the problem of the anti-Netanyahu bloc was exactly that, Netanyahu. Because when you think about the political orientation, ever since the collapse of the Oslo process and Palestinian rejectionism, the majority of the public is center-center-right when it comes to those issues. In Israel. In Israel. Absolutely. And you can find in the Knesset over 80 members of Knesset who are more aligned with the right. So establishing a government without Netanyahu would have been much easier. So in many ways, this has been the battle of Bibi. And those who were opposing Netanyahu were hoping that he's not going to get a majority. They weren't thinking of necessarily winning. They were hoping that he wasn't going to get a majority, and then there was a chance that he might be toppled from within and asked to be replaced by another Likud leader. And they were unsuccessful. Why were they unsuccessful? First of all, like we mentioned before when we spoke, before the elections, a major element, we're talking about an MIT graduate, a major element of, of understanding Israeli election is its machination. Mm -hmm. You have to understand the inner screws and bolts of how this machine works with the numbers. Netanyahu even makes a reference to it in his book when he's talking about his first steps in Israeli politics when he came back from serving as an ambassador to the United Nations and there was a system called uh, the, the, the teams of seven. Of course, trust Israeli politics to make nothing easy. So in, within those seventh uh, groups, teams that he had the primaries of Likud, he wanted to achieve number five in the first team of seven. Um, and he's mentioning that his path to achieving this was using elements of game theory. So he's thinking game theory when it comes to Israeli politics, and he's using the same kind of almost physical uh, understanding of Israeli politics in this election, when he fortified his block, when he created, out of fragments of votes, technical blocks. So, for instance, we were mentioning the ultra-right. He took all of those votes of the ultra-right, which include three factions, Noam, religious Zionism and Jewish power of Itamar Ben-Gvir, and instead of allowing them to run separately, thus losing potential votes by not passing the electoral threshold, he created a technical block. And he said, you're all going to run together. He literally butt their heads against each other, brought them home to Caesarea to sit by the pool and said, you're not leaving until we sign this. And once they establish a technical block, it means the three of them are running together so that the test of the electoral threshold is easily passed because one of them had this, the other one had that, so together they'll pass. Once that's done, lo and behold, unsurprisingly, they announce they're separating. So once they pass the threshold, they come into the Knesset and now they shake hands and say, we love each other, but we're going to act separately and negotiate separately with Netanyahu 
on the establishment of the new coalition government, and so they did. So now that party that won 14 seats, the technical bloc, is now divided into three factions composed of a faction of one, a faction of six, and a faction of seven, each negotiating separately. So Netanyahu understood that. The problem with the anti-Netanyahu bloc is that they did not. And you had people running in that block who did not pass the electoral threshold, not just merits. You had somebody like a lone member of Knesset by the name of Eli Avidar, who used to be part of Lieberman's Israel is our home, Israel Beitenu, who then decided that he has his own constituency, parted ways with Lieberman during the, um, uh, during the term in the Knesset, behaved like he's a faction of one, and said, I have my own party, and I'm going to run on my own, and I'm going to win. So he took you know, whatever votes he took that didn't pass the threshold. Votes which don't pass the threshold end up in the dustbin, or actually, in the way of calculation, like we explained before, may end up helping Netanyahu by not being counted. So what happened as a result, like you mentioned so wisely, was that merits didn't pass the threshold. And I want to say something about that. Because merits didn't pass the electoral threshold by, get this, 3,000 votes. In Israel, you have 6,800,000 eligible voters. Meretz was lacking 3,000 votes to pass the threshold. What does passing the threshold mean? It's the difference between, Mark, zero and four. Zero and four, 3,000 votes. Netanyahu, like you said, has 64 seats in the Knesset. 3,000 votes may have made it 60. 60 is not a majority. Right. 3,000 votes were the difference between a resounding defeat and an outstanding victory. Yes. This is how volatile Israeli politics okay, is. Okay, but I want you to make sure the audience understands. Sure. You're not saying that the 3,000 people who didn't vote for merits, therefore not pushing merits over the threshold, all would have voted for Netanyahu. No, 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 no. I'm or saying that had they voted, them, had they voted for merits. Yes, all right. They needed to vote for merits. Then merits would have passed the threshold. Then you had four more seats for the opposing bloc. Now think about Netanyahu. He has 64 seats, right? So under such a reality, he would have less. Maybe he would have had 60 maybe 59 as a result, which means he wouldn't have had a majority, which means it's the exact stalemate that the, the anti-BB bloc was hoping for, at, at which point imagination can run wild mm -hmm. when BB is deposed, Nir Barkat rises, a unity government is, is, is composed of Likud in the lead and other can come and join, a lot of different scenarios. But all I'm saying is, 3,000 votes made such a big difference, and everybody knew this, and more than anyone, Netanyahu knew this. And this is why he made sure that even fragments of the ultra-ultra-right, their votes would be counted by creating that technical block. And that machination, that deep understanding of the wizard of Israeli politics, paved the path for his victory and his sixth term as Israel's prime minister. Amazing. All right. Um, do you think that there are merits supporters who are kicking themselves for not voting? Oh, I'll tell you who's kicking themselves. The head of the Labour Party, Merav Michaeli, 
they different elements in the Israeli political system, mainly of the anti-Netanyahu bloc, implored her. They said the same way Netanyahu created the technical bloc on his end, create a technical bloc with merits so that labor and merits can run together. And that way none of them is going to, you know, both can pass the electoral threshold, none of them will fail. And then afterwards you can split ways, you can take your whatever seats, merits will take their seats and we're good. Just sign the agreement. She was so stubborn about not signing the deal. She? She, Merav Michaeli, was really stubborn-headed and said, I'm not going to do this. And as a result, it is what it is. And fingers were definitely pointed in her direction for her failure in doing so. And it is what it is. It's so interesting because none of this is understood right. in general by American Jews. Right. That ultimately, a, a political concept where you convince parties to merge, and you know by doing that, the total vote will put them over the threshold. And, and more than that even, you know, people look at this and think, Netanyahu gained a great victory. Oh, he convinced all of Israel. But when you look at the numbers, Mark, the numbers are roughly the same as in the last four rounds. There wasn't a big difference. And Netanyahu block won by a few, you know, a few hundred thousand, hundred thousand votes somewhere there. But it wasn't a significant difference that was, um, that meant a landslide victory for Netanyahu. The only main thing that made a difference was the alignment of your pawns on the field and the understanding of how the numbers in, in politics work. And of course, Netanyahu's eagerness because for him it was to do or cease to exist on the political stage. He knew the risks that may face him if he fails to deliver in this round. So he urged, he, you know, you should have seen the campaigns, the political ads on TV. Netanyahu was calling random people who were on the list of Likud voters, you have to go and vote, sending cars in to bring them to vote. People knew, and those who voted for him knew what they were doing because, and here is the magic of Netanyahu. We talked about identity politics, and unfortunately, one of the things I noticed, and, and to me it's a great risk within Israeli society, is the societal fraction and, and fragmentation to different groups in the population that fight each other. And the conversation, Mark, went back to, uh, let's talk about Ashkenazi and Sephardi, let's talk about white and black, let's talk about who has more rights and who has less rights, let's talk about racism. and. A large group of Mizrahi Jews see Netanyahu as their authentic representative mm -hmm. against the elite. Now allow me to remind you, Netanyahu Benjamin, the brother of Yoni Netanyahu, the famed hero of the Entebbe raid, the son of Professor Benzion Netanyahu of Rechavia, a, a global scholar and the secretary for Jabotinsky. You're talking about that Netanyahu, right? A fully Mizrahi leader, authentic of the masses from the um, uh, the, you know, the city of Sderot in the south of Israel, Moroccan Jews and Yemenite Jews and Iraqi Jews and other people who align themselves with the Mizrahi identity and he is their unmistakable leader, that's the Netanyahu magic right there. The ability of that kid from Rechavia, a product of the ultimate Israeli elite who is the hero of the underprivileged. Amazing. He is not Menachem Begin. No, he's not Menachem because Begin. Because Begin did represent them. Begin spoke their language, but in many ways Netanyahu, and I'll never forget, um, he made a speech a couple of years ago 
uh, I think it was in Sderot, and he said, oh, you know, I, I checked, and it seems I have some Sephardic blood within me. <laughs> I am connected. So, you know, they feel for him, Mark. You know, when you spoke to people and they voted for him, it's like they were voting for their mother. They felt for him. They were like, just like the, the judicial system tramples on us, we, they try to do the same to him. We have to stand by him. That was an amazing feeling. You nodded when I said to you that there is a similarity between the way Americans who hate Trump hate him with a passion. They revile him. And the fact that in Israel, there are people who hate Netanyahu Absolutely. and love the guy. Oh, you can't. Uh, you know, somebody said it's like, um, it's like parsley. You know, you either love it or you detest it. You can't touch it. Netanyahu evokes a lot of emotions. Absolutely, on both ends. And yet, he was able to win enough support among those who either don't hate him or love him, that he wins. And one of the things... No, I think his bloc loves him. Like when you think about Likud they love and him. the Haredis and the, the right wing, uh, the, the winners of the recent Israeli political machinations, absolutely love him. Okay. Which parties are going to be in the coalition? So right, right now you have a cohesive bloc. You have Netanyahu with 32 members of Knesset, half of the 64 that he has in his block. You have Aryeh Deri, the head of the Sephardic ultra-Orthodox party of Shas. You have the Ashkenazi ultra-Orthodox party, headed by Moshe Gafni and Goldknop. And of course, you have the right-wing parties of Bezalel Smotrich of religious Zionism, Itamar Ben-Gvir of religious power, and Avi Maoz of Noam. And there you have it, okay. a right-wing coalition. Okay. And homogenous, cohesive, Simple. Netanyahu said when he, was, uh, when he uh, won the election, in one week I'm going to establish a government. Right now it's published that he's going to ask for an extension for President Herzog. But I am correct that if you bring your party into the coalition government, you ask for certain things mm -hmm. from, the, if in this case, from Netanyahu. Do you know Middle Eastern Bazaar? <laughs> and what, part of what you ask for is you want to be defense minister. You want to be foreign minister. And Netanyahu may want to be foreign minister and defense minister himself. So the question becomes... While juggling the trial. Yes. We're not going there yet. The, the problem becomes, though you said trial, digression, asterisk. Did it play any role in this election? It played a role in the course of the five rounds of elections. It's the main reason this why one. so many... Of course, of course it did, on both ends, by the way. On the anti-BB end, who really wanted to bring him down and went to vote, and on the pro-BB, who said it's, oh, they're just trying to take our leader away from us. But otherwise, people got used to it. That's what I felt. Yeah, people got used to it. The trial continues. As we speak, the trial There are over 300 different witnesses who are supposed to, uh, uh, to testify on behalf of the prosecution. By the way, one of those witnesses, Ambassador Gilad Erdan, Israel's ambassador to the UN, in his position as Minister of Communication um, mm -hmm. at the time. So it continues. The trial continues, the testimonies continues, Netanyahu continues to conduct his trial as we speak. Okay. But Israel, you know, there was even an interesting instance where one of the leading um, uh, docu-research shows on Israeli TV 
aired an exclusive interview with one of those who testified against Netanyahu, Nir Hefetz, his former media advisor and confidant of him and Sarah. And there were a lot of interesting elements and gossip and deep, deep details within those testimonies. And you know what it changed? Nothing. Mm -hmm. So my sense was, and this is sort of, you know, it's like the, the stock market. The stock market has things built into it so that when something comes, it's already built into it and there's no movement. Right. My sense is this is now built into it right. and that this is not going to be the critical issue. It became part of the narrative. Exactly. And they I'll, try to bring me down because I represent you. So defending me is defending you. Oh, it's a brilliant thing to say. That's exactly the line he was taking. Incidentally, you had to finish the asterisk. Alan Dershowitz has a podcast. On the podcast, Alan Dershowitz said he did not feel that the things that Netanyahu was charged with rise to a level where the equivalent of how he said about impeachment, that somehow that should be why. Netanyahu is, is uh, thrown out, that the charges are simply not significant enough. Do you agree or disagree with Dershowitz? I think the court will agree or disagree with Dershowitz because at the end of the day, it was quite clear that I, I, I beg to differ here a little bit with Professor Dershowitz because Netanyahu was to the very best of his defenders less than cautious when he, um, the way he behaved or um, managed himself because for somebody who is a minister of communication um, to, I'll give you an example, one of the indictments, right? So there was supposed to be a reform in the communication market that was supposed to bring down costs of certain products from 55 shekels to 11 shekels a month. A considerable difference. Um, that would have hurt uh, Mr. Alovich, the owner of the YES satellite communication team. So he used his lobbyists to reach out to Netanyahu and say maybe something could be done. And then suddenly the Ministry of Communication, headed by a Director General appointed by Bibi, who by the way testified against him, was asked to change the reform a little bit so that it becomes 33 shekels a month instead of 11 shekels. I mean, all sorts of shenanigans that should not have taken place. Mm. So whether it comes to the level of bribery, whether um, demanding positive coverage from the media is indeed um, inappropriate, we know relationships between politicians and media outlets. And it always, there is always like a gray area there. But have we exceeded the gray area into the black one when the owner of that media outlet received economic perks, as I display just now, in exchange for positive coverage in the media? Is this, there are issues there that need to be sorted out, Mark, for the sake of Israeli politics. Um, it was clear that Netanyahu was not careful enough and allowed himself to behave in a way that exposed him. And even though there are those who are claiming that this is um, selective enforcement and, the, and it's not appropriate, let the court decide. It's before the court. These are very, very important cases, by the way, to determine the code of conduct within Israeli politics. He could one have definitely been more careful. One of the charges is that he received cigars and champagne. Correct. Now, you know, there have been members of Congress here in the United States who accepted gifts that are inappropriate. We're talking about trips to 
resorts and hotel right. accommodations. And, well, when you compare that to cigars and champagne, it's hard to get worked up about it. Well, I'll say two things. One is you have to ask yourself the extent of the cigars and champagne because there is an occasional cigar and then there is $200,000 worth of gifts. So we have to determine exactly what was given. And here is a bigger question than what was given. What was given in exchange? Because one of the accusations is, the indictments, is that he acted on behalf of the person who supplied those gifts to him vis-a-vis -vis international elements the American administration and others. So what is that? You know, is it just a favor for a friend, okay. like, like he claims? Right. Or is it more than that? There is a gray area that needs to be determined here. Oh, well, it's fascinating to see as this plays out through the court system. Uh, but also, when you talk about the trial, it's much easier for Netanyahu to play or, or to play in that arena or go through his trial from the office of the prime minister. But it was said that one of the reasons why his becoming prime minister again was so important to him was that he would be able to in some way block the investigation. No, I'll, I'll tell you. First of all, no, I, there is no he can block anything, like knowingly block. This is, you know, Israel, like I told you, is a celebrated democracy. When people criticize Israel, I always tell them you should come to Israel. We're harsher critics than what you'll ever be. So anybody who accuses Israel, or by the way, Netanyahu of being a tyrant, there is nothing more ridiculous than that. Because even within the Israeli political system, Mark, and this is something so many people forget, the Likud is the, one of the only democratic parties. I mean, the voters of Likud elect internally their representative to the Knesset, and who's going to head the movement? Yair Atid, uh, Yesh Atid by Yair Lapid, he's the one who's picking his list. Avigdor Lieberman, he's the one who's picking his list. Benny Gantz, he's the one who's picking his list. They don't have primaries within their parties. Likud does have. So that's, pardon my French, it's a shameless, ri mm -hmm. ridiculous accusation. At the same time, even though Israel you know, is a democracy and he can't do anything to officially block anything, the fact that he's conducting, that the trial is conducted from the office of the prime minister means that there is a certain consideration that the system gives to the, um, to the defendant. That means that when one of the top issues mentioned, by the way, by all members of the incoming coalition is the dire need of reform in the Israeli judicial system. So the defendant is going to be at the helm of <laughs> passing legislation pertaining to reform in the Israeli judicial system. So I'm asking you this. He had no, no gun has been shot, but the gun has been placed on the table, mm -hmm. right? The pistol is there. Now I need to make a decision about reforms in the, the way we choose our judges or certain conducts of the Israeli Supreme Court. Now the same judges are supposed to make a decision in my case. So he's not blocking anything, but I think it would be naive to assume that none of it is going through their minds. That doesn't seem to matter enough. To whom? To those who love him. Oh, for sure not. Absolutely. Those who, I'll tell the, <laughs> even the discussion about reforms needed in the judicial system go beyond Netanyahu. I mean, there is a, a long-standing debate about Israel's constitution. We don't have a written one, but we have basic laws. 
Are they enough to constitute a constitution? Are they enough for the Supreme Court to abolish laws made by the Knesset, by the elected officials? So there, there is this checks and balances battle that continues to this very day. I'll tell you one more thing, Mark, and that also goes back to the way people voted. Um, Israelis, to a degree, were outraged by the easy sentences given to perpetrators of different offenses by the Israeli courts. And they look at this as part of the word that keeps on repeating itself in the Israeli politics to this very day, governance. Are we able to execute proper governance? And that means that when a 17-year-old Bedouin um, committed a horrible case of a sexual assault against a 10-year-old Israeli girl sleeping in her home when he broke into that home, and he, she's going to have to live with the trauma for many years to come, and he receives a sentence of five years, very light sentence, not even in prison, but in a, a rehabilitative center, five years out of which one-third is going to be deducted for good behavior, one-third is going to be deducted for administrative reason, because there isn't enough room in prison, so he's going to get out in a year. That enraged a lot of Israelis. Mm -hmm. That made a lot of people upset, because things need to change. And how does that play? Into Netanyahu, yes or no? Because one of the leading items on his agenda and his bloc's agenda was reforming the judicial system and making sure that it is able to govern properly. And that means we can't have light sentences. We have to have the right judges. It means to have more police officers, Mark. Today, residents of the Negev, for instance, a, a town by the name of Omer outside of Be'er Sheva is a beautiful you know, residential town which has beautiful many million of shekels worth of villas but the people are afraid to leave their homes because out there on the road they may be attacked, robbed, mugged, find themselves in the path of a stray bullet. Um, there aren't enough police officers. Images come out, videos every day of what's happening on the roads there and it made justifiably so a lot of Israelis upset. A few months ago, 18 buses are torched in the northern city of Tzfat in a protection criminal business of Arabs against Jewish businesses. People were upset. How many people hear about that in the American media? How many people know about these things that go back into the topic of life itself mm -hmm. that trouble a lot of Israelis? Mm -hmm. And the main ticket that Itamar Ben-Gvir, for instance, ran on was governance. I will bring back governance to the streets of Israel. And that, by the way, will be the first and foremost test of the new Netanyahu government. Will it? Governance. Will they provide governance? Will they bring more cops on the road? Will they provide more personal security for individuals in Israel? This is where they're going to get tested, and this is where it's going to get interesting. Because it's one thing to sit in the, on the benches of the opposition and say, I would do this, and I would do that. Now you are the government. Now let's see you do. Exactly. By the way, in English, we would probably say this has to do with law and order. Exactly. Law and order. Precisely and in Israel, that. it's governance. But you're talking about law and order, yes. which at the moment is a big issue here in the United States as well. But it's interesting for us to know, and this is because there has sadly been a spike of attacks against Israeli Jews by Palestinian Arabs. Um, by, I'm sorry, but by Palestinian Israelis. And, and Arabs? In, in, and and crime, not just, um, you know, not just terror or on a national level, but also crime. You know, uh, the crime of agricultural theft that, that is happening every day. Terrible things. I, I just want to, you know, mention one more thing about the balance. 
64 member coalition, hopefully, at some point he's going to be able to do it, 32 of whom are Likud, and the other 32 are the Haredis and the ultra-right. But for the first time in Netanyahu's history, up to now when you look into his past governments, you always had somebody to the left of him. Tzipi Livni, Moshe Kachlon, Ehud Barak, an attempt to create a government with um, Buzi Herzog at the time when he was heading the Labour Party. And Netanyahu was kind of like playing the balance between the more right-wing factors to the more center-right-left to the international community. In this case, Mark, Netanyahu is the liberal in his government. <laughs> he is the only one standing to the left of the ultra-right wing. That's going to be a very interesting position for him as prime minister. And no one discusses it from that perspective. No, it's, that he's the liberal. He is the liberal. Um, he is the moderate in a government of extremists. Fascinating. It's going to, see, it's going to be interesting to see how he's going to balance it vis-a-vis -vis the others. All right. I asked you a moment ago about... What, what is the coalition going to be? And you gave it to us. And then I said to you, am I not correct that if you join the coalition, you ask for certain things, right. and very often ministerial positions. And for those in America who are concerned about Israel moving to the right, on the one hand, it is only reflecting the Israeli people. Are you complaining about democracy? Yeah. That's the vote of the people. Exactly. Respect Israeli democracy. Yeah. This is where Israel, by the way, not even with this election, because like I said before, when you look into the composition of the Israeli parliament, you see that there is a clear majority to the, you know, to the center-right right, over 80 members of Knesset who represent that public opinion. So ease your mind. If you respect Israeli electorate, that's exactly where it is. All right. So here's what Thomas Friedman wrote as his open basically, and I want to hear what you have to say. Um, it's interesting that um, this was published in the New York Times as an op-ed in which Friedman predicts that this election marks the end of Israel as we know it. Thomas Friedman wrote, a rowdy alliance of ultra-Orthodox leaders and ultra-nationalist politicians, including some outright racist, anti-Arab Jewish extremists, once deemed completely outside the norms and boundaries of Israeli politics, he's talking about Ben Gvir, as it is virtually impossible for Netanyahu to build a majority coalition without the support of these extremists, some of them are almost certain to be cabinet ministers in the next Israeli government. And then Freeman writes, as that previously unthinkable reality takes hold, a fundamental question will royal synagogues in America and across the globe, quote, do I support? This Israel or not supported. It will haunt pro-Israel students on college campuses. It will challenge Arab allies of Israel in the Abraham Accords, who just wanted to trade with Israel and never signed up for defending the government 
that there is an anti-Israeli Arab. It will stress those U.S. diplomats who have reflexively defended Israel as a Jewish democracy that shares America's values. And it will send friends of Israel in Congress fleeing from any reporter asking if America should continue sending billions of dollars in aid to such a religious, extremist-inspired government. Now that's a lot to respond to in one moment, so you don't have to. I just want gut reaction to what Thomas Friedman has written. Is there any truth in what he writes? Or do you feel he just doesn't understand enough? Listen, I get it he was upset. I get it he was depressed. I get it, you know, he didn't want to see these results. Over two million Israelis felt roughly the same. And we can all sit here and write down scripts of gloom and doom, but it's always great to take a moment, take a sip, breathe in and tell yourself some undeniable, inalienable truth about the state of Israel. First of all, those who oppose Israel on the international stage and on college campuses do not make a difference whether it's Itamar Ben-Gvir, Tamar Bat-Gvir, Benjamin Ben-Netanyahu, or Shimshon Avraham. For them, it's the very existence of the Jewish state on the international stage that needs to be fought against. So standing up for the state of Israel means standing up for the state of Israel. It doesn't mean standing up for each and every policy or statement of each and every minister of the government of the state of Israel. Just like you can love the venerable United States of America without agreeing to each and every element of its president or, or governmental policies. That's one thing. The second thing is, Similar statements were heard about the late Menachem Begin before he assumed position, about thoughts about Ariel Sharon, and we all know which direction these guys headed in when it comes to peace with Egypt or the removal of Israeli presence in Gaza and northern Samaria. So judge a government at least by its deeds and not by its purported words. You know, there is a saying in Hebrew that says, Dvarim sheroim misham lo mikan. Things that you see there you see completely different here. So suddenly, Itamar Ben-Gvir or others are no longer rowdy opposition leaders, but now they're holding the steering wheel. They're at the helm of Israel's leadership of governing the army and the police. Now judge them by what they do, not by what they say, and we should all wish them the best of luck and success, even if we disagree with their politics. You know, heads of Israel's opposition said, um, you know, the incoming opposition, the uh, coalition of change, they said, this is the decision of the people. We're not going to join Netanyahu. We're going to let him run his government and his coalition the way he finds fit. And we wish them all the best. We don't agree with them one iota, and we're going to fight with them from the opposition. But this was the choice of the Israeli people. Respect it. So getting into these moods of now the world has changed before it's even changed, before anything happened, is a bit premature. I would also tell you something on a personal note. We don't have the pri we do have the privilege. We do have the privilege, and I say it all the time, of living at the time when the Jewish state has been resurrected from ashes of history, after the most persecuted people on earth has a state of our own. And it's ours to, and I say this to us here in the world, in the United States, 
in the uh, communities here, on, in shuls all across America. We are proud and privileged to have a Jewish state of Israel, and we should do all that we can to make sure that it continues to prosper and thrive, because the political pendulum swings right and left. At one point it's a coalition of change, another it's the right-wing coalition, and then suddenly something else is going to happen. You know, Israeli governments have um, reputable short life expectancy. So, take a deep breath, keep holding to your faith politically and otherwise, and stand up for the one and only Jewish state of Israel that transcends the politics of the day. That is beautifully and perfectly said. It's interesting, I don't know whether in this particular instance, I am more angered than you are. Uh, and maybe it's because Friedman comes out of the liberal Jewish community for whom he is sometimes like the, the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate voice, and especially now as it relates to the Middle East, given his history. But it infuriates me when I read somebody say something like, should we continue to support Israel or not? And will synagogues in some way be made so uncomfortable by this government that it, they will stop supporting the state of Israel? By the way, the answer for this, Mark, exactly like you're saying, is not disengagement, but over-engagement. You care about what's happening in Israel. You care about the state of Israel. You object certain policies. Engage with Israel, with Israelis, to promote your views. Don't disengage. Oh, I, I agree 100%. I don't know how realistic it is, but I agree in concept. But my own feeling is that the state of Israel is, and you and I have said this already on this program, a democracy. And in a fair election, a certain kind of polit political position was elected, both to run the government and the way the system works, to be part of the government. And I like that fact that you said, let's see what they do, because so often there is criticism of governments before they do anything. And it turns out... Before, the, before there is even a government, Mark. Yes. <laughs> that they do very different things than expected. I don't ever want to hear a Jew say, I don't know if I should support the state of Israel because I don't like a policy. And you don't like a policy? You know, write about it. You can, be, and you can protest it. And you can say this is not something I would do or approve of. Join so many Israelis but that has, do it. Exactly, by the way. You'll, you'll become part of a large, you know, if it's a minority, it's a large minority. Even in Israel, you exactly heard people right. echoing the same sentiment. And so we, as American Jews, we're not supporting, and people, Shachar, don't get it all the time. We're not supporting an idea as important as the idea of Israel is. We are supporting our family. You have family living in Israel. Uh, it is conceivable that in the future, you will again live in Israel For sure. with your wife and beautiful children. And if we support Israel, it's not Israel we're supporting, it's Shachar and his wife 
and his children, it's our people, and his mother, and his our people. It's our family. It's our family. And Israelis have the right to politically choose any government they do. And more, Israelis have as much right as we do to be wrong and to live with it and to correct it. Exactly. And, and so. Exactly. By the way, you're talking about elections of extremists. The Israeli political system legitimized an Arab party by the name of Balad. You can Google it, B-A-L-A-D. The um, um, a party that does not believe in the state of Israel, that believes in, in, in Israel not having a Jewish state, in a state of all of its citizens, that outrightly supported despicable terrorists like Samir Kuntar, who, who killed a, a young Israeli girl as an act of terror and was supported by Hezbollah before he was taken out again by Israel. So you're talking about a party that believes in the annihilation of Israel that was part of the Israeli Knesset. And that's Israeli democracy. With all due respect, when you point the finger at one end of the supposed extremism, be as, can, as comfortable enough to point in the other direction. By and the way, be proud. Be, and b by the way, Bala did not pass the threshold. They, um, they, that was also part of the reason why, you know, Netanyahu's book got more votes because they also parted ways with a joint Arab list and they lost and they didn't even pass the threshold and they're not part of the Knesset and I'm happy for it. Yes, and there is no Arab party part of the coalition. No, the coalition, no, but you know, that's another episode, Mark, for Arab-Israeli politics because right now you have the two Arab parties, the whatever was left of the joint Arab list and Mansour Abbas's united Arab list. Abbas won, he had four seats in the last coalition. Now he's not gonna be part of a coalition, but he won five seats. And he's a very interesting character in Israeli politics. And I think the people who hate him the most are the Arab politicians on the other side who believed like Ahmed Tibi and Ayman Oda, who for ages believed that they shouldn't be part of any ruling coalition, they should always be the opposition, and they should always voice the Palestinian concern. Abbas presented a different approach, and in many ways he won. And maybe at some other point I'll tell you why it was basically that Arab feud that brought Netanyahu back to power. That's fascinating. You predicted that, by the way. Um, is Gavir as bad as they make him out to be? Remains to be seen, right? Gavir, no. he was he was blamed. No. Yeah, he was. You, you know, we we both know how he supported the Kach Park. Wait, wait, but but wait. And, there are two elements here. There are elements of his past, which is quite despicable, supporting Baruch Goldstein and the attack on the Arabs in the mosque in Hebron, and then having his picture on the wall and supporting Kach. But he renounced all of that. And by the way, to the criticism of some of his former friends who said he doesn't represent us anymore. And instead of saying expel all Arabs that he may have said in the past, now he says, I believe in expelling terrorists out of Israel or expelling their families, or I want to bring back the death sentence to terrorists, all of which are positions of discussion within Israeli politics and society. Absolutely. And when people predict, oh, this guy is going to do this and that and this and that, let him do this and that and this and that. Because right now, one of his demands in the coalition was, I want more money for the Israeli police so that we can hire more police officers. I mean, all legitimate. So this was the decision of the Israeli electorate. He knew how to tap into this emotion. He renounced some of his very bad deeds of the past. Let's see where this is going to go. Exactly. And if an Israeli settler 
experiences a terrorist attack on his family or on his community. And he goes out and tries to find the people who may have killed a child, blown up a cafeteria. Does that make that settler a Jewish terrorist? At the end of the day, and by the way, that was even said by Ben Gvir himself, and you don't have to be a supporter, just look at the facts. Anybody who commits an act of violence or terror is, will, be, will be judged accordingly to their crime, even though he does differentiate in his position between nationally motivated acts of terror and regular crime. For he sees that nationally acts of terror, nationally um, uh, perpetrated act of terror out of those nationalistic, chauvinistic um, motives has to be judged differently with an element of deterrence, of whereas regular crime is regular crime and needs to be judged. And it's important to state that because only recently we had a we had a similar incident in Israel, where a Druze Israeli 17-year-old boy, almost 18, uh, made his way with a friend to the city of Jenin in Judea and Samaria and they ran into some sort of an accident. Both of them had to be rushed to a hospital. The friend was airlifted to an Israeli hospital, but due to the condition of that boy, he was taken into the hospital in Jenin. And what happened was that Palestinian thugs came into the hospital, disconnected him from life support, snatched his body, and claimed that they're gonna demand Israel, uh, they're gonna use his body as a bargaining chip in order to demand Israel for concessions, uh, releasing some bodies of terrorists and others. Can you imagine such an inhumane act like you could never believe, going back to college campuses, Ben Gvir or no Ben Gvir, who do you support, the state of Israel or that thuggery? And that led, by the way, um, a great response from the Druze community in Israel who threatened Palestinians and who said that if that corpse is not returned for burial, they're going to make the life of every Palestinian they encounter miserable. And lo and behold, by the end of the night, that corpse was returned to Israel and was put to burial. I will also commend the family of that Druze boy who said that uh, there are enough uh, uh, victims as it is. They don't want the IDF to commit any operation to salvage the body for the not risking other IDF soldiers as a result and very commendable of the family. But at the end of the day, and I can also tell you that um, three uh, Druze soldiers uh, acted on their own in throwing explosives at the homes of Palestinians um, as a result of that deed they were arrested by the Israeli police for their deed, um, and they will be tried for what they did. But at the end of the day, the corpse was returned. Fascinating and wonderful. You know, the story continues. <laughs> you know, uh, although we finally had an election, uh, the story continues. How will it play out? What will the final coalition look like? And what positions will be filled by whom? All of this, we will turn to you and you will help us understand the machinations of all of the things that go on as Netanyahu now tries to put together a sustainable government. It will be so much fun to continue the conversation. So I'll just tell you, I'll tell you this, Mark. One thing, whether it's this government or another, the state of Israel is here forever to be successful, prosperous and a source of pride for all of us in America and around the world. Amen, via amen. So there you have it. The thoughts of Shahar Azami on the results of the fifth round of Israeli elections. 
in which Benjamin Netanyahu is the winner and will be forming and leading a coalition government as Israel's, Israel's prime minister. I hope you found Shakar's commentary informative and somewhat eye-opening. As always, I invite you to be in touch with me at my email address, rabbigolov at jbstv.org. My thanks to our director, Sloan Copeland, production coordinator, Michael Paley, to JBS's managing director, Dara Golub, and to senior producer, Carol Lilienthal. Until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. Be well, my friends.